Hey everyone, welcome to Required Reading. This week we talk A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, a classic story which everyone knows. So we don't follow the plot super close, we just talk about the story as it goes, we have fun with it. Uh, it's of course Mike and Mike, Mike Carol and Mike Burns, and we're joined by a guest of ours, Mark Craddock, who is here at our school, the band director, but also uh, a few years back was challenged by his students to read everything Dickens. Uh, he has done that once, he has done it again, um, and he, frankly, probably knows Dickens better than anyone. So please enjoy this Christmas carol. Uh, Mark refused to let me talk about a Muppet Christmas carol, uh, but I snick in a few jokes here or there. So thanks, guys, for all you do. Thanks for sharing. And with this one, we gave it a little bit of a rolling start. But don't worry, I'm still at the helm, and I still have an introduction. Thanks, guys. Have you ever have you ever done one of these and then been like, no, shouldn't teach it? There were a couple. I mean, we, the one we did with Death of a Salesman with Kevin. Yeah, uh, we decided that. I mean, it's perfectly fine to teach, but none of the things would necessarily relate to the students. Yeah, right. Which is why we gave it up. Yeah, yeah, it's because it's sure it's the American dream, but it's really a man who's looks back on his life and sees that it yeah. doesn't really matter. Yeah, um, it's a very middle age story. Yeah, Late which. Which makes it a book that – it's a play that I enjoy very much. But, no, I, I can see why you wouldn't teach it to kids or um, – Yeah, that makes sense. Which also brings up that topic that, you know, the um, the kids are always asking about stuff. And, and I say, well, because, you know, they say anything in the band room. But why do we have to do this? And, I'm, you know, yeah. part of it is like when, they, when they, the whole Dickens thing when we got into that, the, I mean, with me, was they were – griping about having to read excerpts out of Great Expectations. And it's so boring, and oh my gosh. And I said, well, yeah. I understand, but you got to get you while you're here. And you're not old enough to understand Romeo and Juliet when you're 14, but the characters are 14, so yeah. they think it'll be, this is a nice place to plug it. So this happens with a lot of things. I didn't think Scarlet Letter was particularly interesting when I read it in high school. I thought it was a super bore. Yeah. And then read it when I was maybe in my 40s, and it scared the pants off of me. Yeah. Uh, you know, that moment when the, the A showed up. So, yeah, they have to get you while they got you, and some of it is over your head, but yeah. is it still worth reading and yeah. is it still worth looking at yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and of course in the case of Dickens he is still one of the top the, th the top three selling things in the English language are Shakespeare Dickens and the Bible wow and so I guess he's still relevant he's still, still doing it yeah well, and I mean, it's not in our curriculum anymore is it? not in the curriculum I don't think so we, we did great expectations for years mm -hmm. it was great well I'm just I mean this is not to call out a student but after she was done with her test, uh, Bridget Durham, do you know her? Mm -mm. She was reading Tale of Two Cities. And I'm like, you reading that for a class? She goes, no, just reading it. I'm like, good for it's you. It's a great book. Yeah. It's so it is. Much, and, and the characters, I mean, I have never met, except for maybe a Circe, a more evil person than Madame Defarge, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Circe ranks up there. She didn't come off as evil in the TV show, I thought, as she did in the book. <laughs> I, I'm with you. And it's just it's such an interesting because I mean we'll get into this, but I think Dickens might be one of the greatest character creators mm -hmm. in the yeah, English absolutely. language. Absolutely. You know, without I mean, doubt. 
Well, and George R. R. Martin. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And Shakespeare. I mean, I guess Shakespeare would be in the what Elizabethan era, the Renaissance era. Um, the Victorian era is really about creating characters. Uh, almost all the novels I can think of, from Elizabeth Gaskell to, to Charles Dickens to the Brontes, are all about creating characters mm -hmm. that are character narratives. Mm -hmm. um, and they're all specifically about the middle class. Uh, right. I mean, Dickens is right to the middle class. He knows his audience. Um, you can talk about Frankenstein literally creating characters. Yeah, literally. <laughs> Manufacturing <laughs> characters. All right. Let's get going here. Welcome to Required Reading. This holiday season, we've decided to pick up the classic Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. I'm your host, Nick Hoffman, and on the panel we have... Mike Carroll. And... Mike Burns. And we have a guest this week, our relative... Uh, well, he's our band director and our relative Charles Dickens expert... Mark Craddock. Mark Craddock. Welcome, Mark. Yeah. Uh, so we decided to finally bite the bullet and do the Christmas story that everyone has expected us to do since season one. <laughs> Charles Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol. Um, I rarely get to say this, um, but I'm sure all of you have seen a version of this, read a version of this. Uh, if you haven't, put the podcast aside for a second and read it, because I bet you reading aloud, it would take you three hours. It's very short, it's sweet, it's to the point, and uh, something that Mark and I were talking about beforehand, you miss a lot of Dickens's humor if you mm. just have seen the version of it, because we expect ghost stories to be kind of creepy, and so they really emphasize the creepiness of Marley coming out of the knocker and the ghost showing up when he's in his gym jams. But there's a lot of humor in how much Dickens hates the character at first, only to have him converted to a better character later. So you don't get that unless you read it, so I'd say read it if you can. Um, so, gentlemen, I know all of us are familiar with this. When was the first time you actually picked it up and read it? Um, so I'll, I'll kind of pick that up here. The first time I read it actually was for this podcast. Um, I've seen the productions of it probably about a dozen times, but I had never actually read it before. Uh, and... I think, Nick, you hit it right on the head there in saying that you miss so much of the comedy and you miss so much of the the beauty of the story when you're just watching it up on stage or when you're just watching it in a, uh, in a filmed production of it. Um, I found the narrator hysterical. I was laughing out loud at points when, when, I, was, uh, when I was reading my way through it. And um, yeah, so th this was the first time that I had actually read the text um, and I can't recommend it enough, just like Nick is saying. I think that there's a lot that's lost between um, the page and the stage. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that I grew to appreciate in this, in this reading through it. I'm interested to talk about what you think is missing. Yeah, this is the first time I've read it too. I mean, I'd read, you know, shortened versions, children's versions and, and those sorts of things, but never read it um, as a standing text before. And it, yeah, it's great. Um, I think it's, I don't know, we'll, we'll talk more about the, um, the many productions of it and, and um, versions of it, because I think any good work sort of lends itself, is flexible enough to withstand all those adaptations. So um, that's what I love about it. So it works in so many ways, yeah. What about you, Mark? 
the first time I read it was about 10 years ago during the Dickens Challenge. My students had challenged me to read all of Dickens because they said I couldn't talk to them about Dickens unless I had read all of the works. Uh, I'd seen so many different versions of the movie, and in particular, theater versions. And Nick, I think you're also right uh, when you were talking about you miss a lot because so many of the stage productions that I'd seen were more about the stage craft. How do you get the ghost on stage? Mm -hmm. How do you make them particularly representative of what they're supposed to be, the loving childhood one, the scary future one, et cetera, et cetera, and how do, how do you animate these? It's, uh, I've seen one that was mostly puppets, one that was mostly projections, you know, the, a lot of different ways to see it. And even though the story is basically still there, you're missing the eloquence of his writing, uh, the turn of phrase and the characterization. And, and what you get is the scary old man that's been converted into the loving grandfather or whatever he becomes. Could you believe a puppet version, Mark? Absolutely. Well, uh, even the you know down at the Alliance Theater, the Tom Keys production, sure. a lot of the the way that they do the monsters and the ghosts and the the critters yeah. are with you know following the Lion King with large right. those kind of puppets, sure. not like the Muppet puppets. <laughs> well, I mean, especially uh, Christmas yet to come. You want it to be imposing, right? That's right. Um, or the uh, Christmas Past is usually childlike in its mm -hmm. depiction. Um, but just case in point. I had the whole thing in front of me. And again, you couldn't have an easier book to get your hands on because it's in the public domain. Everyone has an audiobook version. Or it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Um, but again, everyone knows the first line. One of the most famous lines in English literature, Marley was dead to begin with. And, but the thing is, that's usually where the film diversions end. It just keeps going. There was no doubt about that. The register of his burial is signed by a clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it. And Scrooge's name was upon it was good upon change for everything he chose to put his hands to. Old Marley was dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know of my own knowledge there was anything particularly dead about a doornail. And then he just go like... Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, I, I, versus I a coffin that. nail. Versus, versus, like, yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the, the humor in that. And, and I, had that, I had that quote marked too, not only because it was the, uh, the start of the, of the book, but also because just the... Mike, you were, you were asking before some of those things that I think were lost from the, from the page to the stage. And that humor of the narrator talking about the difference between a doornail versus a coffin nail, that he would have necessarily assumed was the uh, the the most deadly of of ironmonger is that the is that the word that's used yeah but uh, but man the the humor of the narrator and the story is told predominantly in the third person but there are moments like that that slip into the first person and the character of the narrator we were talking before this podcast began about how phenomenal Dickens is at creating characters and the narrator is no exception in this story and I think that that's part of what's lost for me when you're watching a production of it is you don't, you don't get that charm of the narrator and I definitely do think that there's quite a bit of charm. And because there mostly is no narrator when you see a, right. a stage version or mm -hmm. one of the films. Right. And I mean, to point, I, and Mark, you can help me with the history here, but I believe at this point, uh, Dickens, I mean, Mike, when we were teaching The Raven, you were talking about how Poe kept getting ripped off and people would just put the name at the top of his works. And Dickens came to America and people had been making illegal copies of his work for years. So this is written to me as though he's reading it to an audience. Um, and I know for a while he was performing things like a Christmas Exactly. Story. When he came over to America, and he would do staged readings of his works. And this was a big one because, again, probably well, he, because he came, it's short enough. I think maybe the second trip. I think he mm -hmm. came to America in 1842. 41, right before this was published in 
43, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But as I was reading that, that what you're talking about, Nick, it made me think of like uh, Lars from Metallica yeah. in uh, <laughs> Napster because the American press gave him tons of grief because he was asserting that, you know, I wrote these stories, I should get the royalties and all that. And the American press was like, you're you rich man, you you world famous man, just shut up and and go away. And so <laughs> it was very alienating his first visit. But then when he came back in 1867, like he he had a um, a reckoning and, and sort of appreciated Americans more. So I don't know what happened in between. But yeah, as I was reading the background of this, I just kept thinking of Metallica and Lars Ulrich <laughs> just getting a bunch of crap because he's trying to get the money that he deserved. Um, even though he's already doing very well. So. Well, I mean, and to wit, a lot of his stuff, of course, was published as serials. Um, and, you know, Mark, you and I have talked about this a little bit, but there's usually, there's very good stories. He was like, you know, uh, a blockbuster novelist. And so people would wait for the next chapter with bated breath. This being so short is kind of unusual. You know, when you're talking David Copperfield being 900 pages. Uh, and so this, I mean, in my head, he's making this, well, what can I perform? Let's make it a parable about Christmas. Um, and I mean, recently there was even that movie, The the Man Who Invented Christmas or something like that, um, which I don't know if it gives him- Is that about him? Because I have this book. Uh, what, what <laughs> is there a movie? Be? It's called, yeah. So this is The Man Who Invented Christmas, how Charles Dickens, um, A Christmas Carol, rescued his career and revived our holiday spirits. Yeah. I didn't it. know there's a movie. I is guess it? we'll have to watch it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kind of but uh, yeah, we, we can watching. get there. Um, <laughs> and a, a lot of people don't know that Christmas had kind of gone into exactly. disuse before this. Yeah, that uh, up until this time period, uh, Christmas was just basically another day on the calendar. You went to church and you had the day off with your family. Maybe the only day of the year that you had off. But the first Christmas card was mailed and created in 1843, same year as this book. Yeah. Prince Albert had. Um, started decorating the trees at the royal court uh, just the same year or the year before. It was just right at the same time. And and Christmas Carol really did rescue, I don't think single-handedly, but again, put it in the forefront of people's minds that, hey, this is a day that uh, we could really bring forward. And let's exchange gifts. Let's have a dinner. Let's wish each other a Merry Christmas, as it says at the very end of the book, you know, Mm -hmm. almost like the end of what's the, when Santa flies off in his sleigh, happy Christmas to all, to all, good night, you know. Uh, Well, I mean, and and to your point, when, when we talk about um, the Puritans and Oliver Cromwell, I bring up to the kids that, you know, these were, you know, religious Christian extremists. They're very orthodox in their practice, so they banned Christmas. And to them, that's, you know, almost apocryphal. I mean, we've been fighting a, a tragic war of Christmas for decades here in America. But the point is, <laughs> the point is, like, Christmas was a time where people didn't work. They knew they didn't have to work, so they would just get completely blitzed drunk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it was an embarrassing holiday to say that it was a holiday because people were getting schnockered. Like the Fezziwig party? Oh, yeah. the Fezziwig <laughs> party. I mean, it, it sounds like a good time. Let's be honest. Right. Like, oh, come on. The, the, the only good time we have in the past in this book, really. The guy buries his face in a bowl of port, right? Yeah. yeah. yeah just, <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, and at the end, uh, we are reintroduced to drinking. Um, when uh, Cratchit sits down with Ebenezer over a, a bowl of smoking bishop, which is mulled wine. Mm-hmm. And it's just like this idea, oh, you can be respectful. We're not going to take away, don't, don't take an Englishman's drinking away. But, um, you know, you can do it responsibly and be with your family. Family, 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 uh, which is adorable in this. Well, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Sam Adams uh, 
old winter holiday. Oh, right. That's but what the I thought old, of. Right the old Fezziwig, yeah. right. the, the, the illusion that's being made there is just so spectacular. And it's also a very good beer. So for those of you that are also, uh, who are also fond of, of good beer, go and go and get yourself a holiday package. By the time this podcast is coming out, it's probably, it's probably in your, your local public. So. It's, it's already in my fridge. Um, <laughs> well, that's one of the things like I didn't know. Like I knew Fezziwig was a Dickens character, but until I read this as, on its own, because that's something that's not in the stage plays or that I can remember. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, well, I'll drink to that. Or, or the, for the Muppet version, it's old Fozzywig. Um, oh, it was rubber right. chicken factory. Uh, nice. Very nice. I, so that movie came out what, 94, 95. It was the first movie after Jim died. And I think I got it on VHS. Usually part of my family's traditions is to exchange a Christmassy movie, or just mm. at least at this point, just a movie. And so I probably watched it every year since it came out. <laughs> I know it inside out, backwards and forwards. Um, do we need to do a plot synopsis for this? <laughs> I was going to say, like, we could, we could, I don't think that it'll take very long. I mean, we, we, you, you start off, you have uh, Ebenezer Scrooge. We have the, the awesome opening to the story, Nick, that you had read for us. Um, and then we have some, like, quote, visitations that take place before the ghosts. We get the, the clerk, we get the, uh, the nephew Fred, and then we get, of course, the kind of the inciting event uh, when Jacob Marley comes and, uh, and in all of his splendor explains his ghost ship, I guess you could say, um, and is giving the, the warning to Ebenezer Scrooge that he's going to be visited by three ghosts. Um, and that's, that's kind of like the first, I don't know, maybe like 25 pages or so, and, and you're already off and running and awaiting the visitation of that first ghost. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the first part of it, if there's anything else that people want to talk about in that. I'll just say, opening. yeah, just um, doing the little research on the origin, that he based um, Marley in chains based on what he saw in a prison in outside of Philadelphia, actually. Yeah. So oh, he wow. saw prisoners in chains, and that sort of like resonated, and that's where he wrote that he was inspired to to clothe him in those chains. Yeah. Prison reform movement. Right. I mean, we even get a comment. Like, he's like, Marley was dead, blah, blah, blah. If it were not perfectly convinced that Hamlet's father had died before the play, there would be nothing remarkable taking that stroll that night. Like, it's just, <laughs> it, he, he's like, I know what I'm doing on stage. Let's have fun. But let's just, because we're here, and you're usually the quote guy, so I prepared. Um, <laughs> let's describe Scrooge. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. Secret, self-contained, and as solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his nose, shriveled his cheeks, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his lips thin blue... Um, and spoke out shrewdly in a grating voice. Like, and it goes on like this. Yeah. Um, I was talking to Mark yesterday. It's so cool that a Scrooge is now a thing. Yeah. Right? Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's a characterization. Like, we talked about the Grinch when we did our lore, uh, our kids' book episode. But you don't have to know what a Grinch is, but you know what a Grinch is. Mm. You know what a Scrooge is. People forget the turn at the end, but they know what a Scrooge yeah, is. absolutely. Which is so cool. Because we're... Uh, you know, I'm just reading a digital version so I can keep the ones and twos going. But we're three paragraphs in, four paragraphs in what I've read, and they've already described him this like so completely. It's amazing. Well, and it comes back to that to Dickens' ability to be able to create those characters, right? And and 
just listening to it back is so spectacular, Nick, and the the alliteration and the consonants with all of those S sounds that are linking in with that name Scrooge and the the solitary nature of this oyster. <laughs> it's just so it's so well done in the creation of this character and you're so right you know what a scrooge is without even reading that paragraph and then once you read through that paragraph it's it's just part of dickens brilliance in creating that character and we we know a scrooge without ever needing to actually see a scrooge Mm -hmm. i think this is true of all of his characters or the vast majority of them is he is such a lover of humanity and an observer of humanity that once you see one of these characters, you will remember them forever. You, yeah. you know, once you meet Madame Defarge, you never forget her. Once mm-hmm. you've met, and, and she's kind of a side character, and yet this importance uh, is there. Uh, each of the ghosts, you remember them. Everybody in the, you know, everybody knows Tiny Tim. Everybody knows what a humbug is. Everybody knows what mm-hmm. a Scrooge is from not only this book, from every, just being on the street. Yeah. A Fagin. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, it's just the artful Dodger. Like, it, he just has these iconic characters that come around. Absolutely. Um, and, and just to, I, I also want to say just to the um, story structure here, obviously, it's written in staves. You have before the ghosts come, you have the, each ghost has a stave. You have the last one where he's been saved. Um, but there's not a word or character wasted. You know, you have someone coming in who um, is asking for an extension on his mortgage. Well, when Scrooge dies, he's like, oh, thank God we don't have, we have three-week reprieve while they sort all this out. Um, and a lot of these characters aren't given names until they're reintroduced. Like, mm-hmm. uh, Cratchit is just the clerk until he comes back around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how interesting. Uh, the debt, the guy who owes debt, I think, is Pembroke when he comes back around. But at first, he's just the, the clerk, because... Scrooge he's, can't be bothered to He's care nobody about to Scrooge. Yeah, That's yeah, right. Exactly. And then suddenly when he reawakes, they have importance. Yeah, they one. have an identity now mm-hmm. that they've now that they have importance to him. Yeah. I'll argue though that it, I don't think there are words wasted, which I think is why it's so adaptable because you can still get to the essence of the story and strip some of some of those things away. I mean, you can strip away the coffin nail joke or whatever and you still get it. And you can strip away later um one underneath the robes of one of the ghosts. There's oh, um, yeah. the two children. ignorance and want, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, Which yeah, is yeah. in some stage productions I've seen and, and others it's not. So I would argue, I'm not saying Dickens is like excessively verbose or anything, but I think what makes it a, such a good tale or so adaptable is like the essence of the story is so good. Those characters are so good, like you're saying, Mark, that you've seen them and they resonate with you. You, know, you all know a Scrooge or yeah. you know a Cratchit or a, a Tiny Tim. Or yeah, and Mike, like you, that, and I so. were, you and I were talking before the podcast too about some of those moments that do feel a little uh, a, a little bit as though there's a, a bit much going on. And the, the part that I cited, I don't have the quote, but the part that I was talking about was in the moment before the ghost of Christmas present shows up and he's looking out the window and he's listing off the litany right. of things that are the, the holiday themed things and the chestnuts and, the, and, and this long list of things. And, and I guess we could, we could certainly truncate some of the, some of those moments. Right. Um, but still, I think that there's, I, I think that you're right, Mike, when you strip away some of that uh, superfluous, I guess I'll use the word language, uh, you're still left with, at, at its core, at its essence, uh, a parable, a Christmas parable. Um, and I think that that's part of what's so adaptable to the stage. Yeah, I wanted to ask you guys, too, so you, you brought it up, so let's go there now. 
I mean, is this a, like a Christian allegory, a conversion story, or how do you guys read it? Or is it just a sweet? And I know Dickens had some sort of ambivalent ideas about religion, but um, I don't know. What do you guys think? I think it's got several ways to go about it. You know, on the one hand, it's obviously he based it on two ideas that he had had before. One, uh, this basic same story is told in uh, Pickwick Papers. The Goblin Who Stole the Saint or something like this. I can't remember mm-hmm. exactly what it was. The, the chapter was called. It was a little preview. And then he had also planned to write a pamphlet about the saving of a poor child. But right. he thought this would make a little bit more of a, a way in. So it's got the social aspect but also the Christian aspect. And, in fact, there's the, the, the reading of the story of Scrooge not only as a man – but as a savior, based around the fact that he says at the end, I'll be a father to Tiny Tim now. Right. Well, Tiny Tim already has a father, but he's becoming more of a spiritual father right. and of somebody who represents not only the religion aspect, but the greater Britain as the savior of the children. Somebody needs to come and take care of the children. Um, so there's that aspect, too. Yeah. What do you guys think? So I, uh, I'm going to put the English teacher cap on. Here I love that hat. You wear we, it well. Yeah, we, we always we always talk about whether the the text would be something that we would, and not to spoil what I'm sure is going to come, Nick, at the end of the episode. But uh, <laughs> but the, uh, the whether this would be something that we would teach in a in a class curriculum. And I've always thought, and this was based off of a conversation that I had with my freshman year roommate at Boston College uh, when we were taking a theater class together. Um, but I view the story of Ebenezer Scrooge as a traditional Greek tragedy without the fall. And if you think about the criteria for what goes into a Greek tragedy, you need an elevated character, which certainly the wealth of Ebenezer Scrooge would lend itself to. He needs to be fated, which I do think that he mm-hmm. is with the visitation of, of Marley so early on in the story. He needs to be flawed, which his miserly conduct, I think, would, would represent his hamartia, uh, that tragic flaw that ends up leading to his downfall. But we don't get that fall that comes at the end. We kind of come close to it. And if this story were to end in the graveyard with the ghost of Christmas yet to come telling him that this fate cannot be changed, then I think that we would have a true Greek tragedy if that's where the story ends. But we do get the redemption that comes after he awakes and he's able to change his ways. And I think that it's so interesting, and I'm sure that we'll get into the end of the story, but the ghost of Christmas yet to come never speaks. And Ebenezer Scrooge straight up asks the ghost, is this the is this fated? Is this going to be what it is that takes place? Or can I change my ways? And the ghost never responds. And I think that that's really important that that Ebenezer Scrooge wakes up that that I would say next morning, but it's actually, I guess, like the previous morning. Uh, and and he goes about changing his ways, never having an answer to that question from the ghost. And so I think that that's an important aspect, at least in my in my reading of what comes so close to being a tragedy. Um, the fact that he goes about making this change without uh, without ever having that confirmation that he's ever going to be redeemed. 
Uh, so, so I know this. Shout out to my my college roommate Stephen Leto, if you're listening to this, uh, because that's the that was a conversation that we had had about uh, about the parallels between Ebenezer Scrooge and uh, and the tragic heroes. And getting back to your Christian allegory again, he's had his resurrection. He has died right. at the graveyard. He has risen again with a new outlook and a new clean shirt, or whatever you'd like yeah. to say, and going back out into the world as a new man. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's also. Um, Gosh, what was I just going to say? That um, it's interesting or it, it ties in with the social commentary, right? Because the idea that we can change, it's not too late or there is hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you want to end with that idea of the injustices of the poor or whatever that I think leaving it that way, as you're saying, Mike, I think I hadn't thought of it that way, but I think that absolutely mm-hmm. works. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, in my, my head, it's a, I mean, there's a Christian allegory here, perhaps, but it's very critical of capitalism in this time period. Um, we have essentially the big three who are quoted to one degree or another almost verbatim. Uh, you have, of course, Adam Smith. You have the debate between Scrooge and Pembroke. You know, I can't pay the rent this month. He goes, sir, consider my wife and child. And Ebenezer Scrooge that says, business is business. Good day. Like, and he kind of gets into this whole thing about both contracts. And that's Smith. That's 101. You have Thomas Malthus. Malthus believed that as populations grew, effectively there had to be a, a catastrophe. His evidence was the Black Death. Um, but we, the earth can only support so many people. And so when they reach a certain height, something will come to wipe them out. And, you know, GMOs and, you know, nitrates in the soil have changed that. But, you know, that's the, if he's going to die, he better do it to decrease the surplus <laughs> yeah, population. Yeah, and those are so pointedly criticized by the ghosts. Yes. And in those moments, that's when Ebenezer Scrooge, like, sinks his head because he realizes the flaw in his ways and the flaws thus, Nick, as you're saying, in that ideology. Uh, And I, uh, those were some of the most powerful moments for me in the text was when Scrooge's lines are repeated right back to him. When when he's saying something like to, uh, um, in reference to Tiny Tim, and he's asking the ghost of Christmas present, well, is is he going to live? Tell me he's going to live. And he quotes back that same line about surplus and they better just go ahead and die already. And it's a moment where, where, Ebenezer Scrooge kind of like has to eat crow, I guess, in a way. And those are some of the most powerful moments in, in the text. And going back to Mike, the, the kind of the inciting question that you would ask about what was lost from the page to the stage and what is not, those are still certainly uh, very applicable lines to stage productions and the the like theatrical productions and movie productions, you can still have those callbacks to those quotes and they can still be extremely powerful. Um, and so that's part of what I think is powerful in the theatrical performances and also what's powerful, what, what is powerful in the text. My, my favorite quote from the whole book actually is on that topic, you know, and he says all those people that celebrate Christmas should be boiled in their own Christmas pudding and with a little bit of a vampire reference there with a steak of holly driven through yeah, their hearts. Yeah. So, yeah, my gosh. Well, and, and to me it's also the setting. Like, it's in the workplace and everyone's just like, I guess we got to keep working. I know, right? Don't, don't look up. Put on my fingerless gloves and go back to work. <laughs> you know, or, or even, I mean, because he then doubles down because um in the beginning and again at the end, there are these charity workers asking for a donation. And he goes, aren't there treadmills in prisons? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank God. You, you, you scared me. Send yeah. them there. It's so sarcastic. And yeah. it's, so, uh, it's so biting in that way. And it's part of what makes Scrooge Scrooge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and 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 you have this kind of uh, that's a critique on David Ricardo, but like again, you, he he's he's throwing back at them, you know, and mm -hmm. and we see throughout this, uh, even in the crash at home, everyone has a job, all the children are working, and uh, it's. You know, it's where does this benefit them along the way? And it's not until Scrooge stops being a jerk um, and agrees to raise his salary, which is cool. Um, you guys know the story. We we eventually get visited by, I guess, four ghosts. Yeah. Um, so we should at least take us to the first ghost. Uh, let's talk about Marley. Uh, when he gets home, he's at a f he is living in Marley's old house, presumably because he was the only person Marley left anything to in his will. I would assume. Uh, and I love how he's been too cheap to change any of the signs. So when people show up, they don't know if they're talking to Scrooge or Marley because, mm -hmm. and he doesn't care. He answers to both. Uh, he walks up this kind of dark staircase because every, most of the other rooms have been sold off for offices, which sounds very today. Um, but the fact that the door knocker turns into his former partner kind of scares him. So he lights the lamps. I have to say, in all of the old movies, uh, the older versions of this, when you're walking through this little London scene you just described for us, Nick, then they you can't tell if you're watching Jack the Ripper or uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, you know, Jekyll and Hyde, because of these dark, really horrible London streets. And I remember as a child watching these movies, and when he gets home and sees that door knocker yeah. in all of the movie vision, uh, versions, you see that vision of his face as the door knocker changes. And I was terrified and would go run to the bedroom and climb under the sheets, you know, because oh, yeah. we always saw it at night okay. and, uh, you know, on a Christmas night or something. And that scene is really important. Impressionant, impressive, uh, yeah, because it, it leaves you right in your bed. Suddenly, there's a ghost. Yeah, and I mm. think that it's it's so iconic, right? Mm. And I think that that's that's kind of a, a throwback to last season when we were going through the most recent um, film production of Macbeth, and we yeah. were talking about how you get to moments in that in that play where you're you and the audience are thinking to yourself, well, what are they going to do with the dagger? What are they going to do at this moment? What are they going to do at that moment? And I think that the that the door knocker is one of those moments, right? Mm -hmm. Anytime you're watching a theatrical performance or anytime that you're watching a movie adaptation of this story, you're always wondering, well, what are they going to do with the door knocker? What are they going to do with the chains? What are they going to do with these uh, with these particular ghosts, you know, with these particular spirits that are coming to visit? And I think that that moment is kind of the first of those iconic moments that we get in this story um, and it's very it's it's very impressionative I guess and I find that it's missing in a lot of stage productions the the kind of the scenes of how terrible London was at this yeah. time as well as the door knocker scene are kind of missing or they go for the comic especially the more recent ones yeah. London's a bright and happy place with Christmas trees in every window which wouldn't have happened mm -hmm. and you know bright colors and the door knocker scene just kind of falls flat falls flat yeah, yeah. I mean, and I when I when I read this and when I picture it, for the most part, it is it's it's a dark London, like it's as very though he's dark because he's supposed to be solitary. So he would not live in a part of town that is filled with a lot of joyous people, as solitary as an oyster, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and like you even get the like in the line here, they have like he goes to the pub to have the standard last meal he has at the end of the day that he always orders, but you get the feeling that that's far away even from where he lives. Mm -hmm. um, so I have a question just for, I guess, for our literary guys, whoever. What What is it with the door? Because Marley could have just appeared to him in the fireplace and it was just as effective. So is this door Come representing... On, is it, I mean, I know... I'm paying I, attention I, when I teach. I know, I'm, I'm, I'm teeing you up here because, like, in this, because it's at the door, it's a choice. He doesn't have to open the door. Yeah, it's a threshold. Right. right. Yeah, between, yeah. 
life and death, future, past, all those things, yeah. And he's oh, yeah. let door is a scene, you know, when you go into a door, you enter a new environment. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of necessary. And it's, it's a forewarning. Right. Like he's mm-hmm. it's not you know, it's not dramatic right now in Atlanta. There's a Rodin Museum and they have the gates of hell. These big. No, no. It's the same door he's opened a thousand times before. Just this time. It's it's essentially saying forebode. And he ignores it. He's like, well, I'm not going to pay anything else. Like his room is cold. It's dark. He doesn't something I ate. That's right. <laughs> and he makes a joke and he's shocked. He makes a joke. It, this t- the text even says he doesn't like jokes, but he was nervous at the moment. Mm-hmm. There's not a great there's more of a gravy than a grave about you and it's just <laughs> it's good it's a good line uh, which Dickens clearly was proud of um, but yeah so he goes room to room he has a, a nice filling bowl of gruel as it's described <laughs> and sits down before the fire which is so dim he has to lean over it before he feels any semblance of warmth um, and then Marley appears mm. yeah um, we're good I like Marley um, but the idea is that Marley has been wandering for years since his death. He's been dead seven years now. And uh, he's kind of in, like, being held back by chains. And uh, the first thing Scrooge does is to test to see whether he's real. Like, could you sit down? He goes, yeah, I can sit. As though he sat before, which surprises Scrooge. Um, And this is just me, me talking now. But something that's interesting is this is a Protestant book. An old Catholic tradition Uh, a ghost had to be benevolent because it was either a demon or a spirit in purgatory. And purgatory, they want to get to heaven, so they're always helping characters. If you read old Christian books, they're always trying to help because they want to get to heaven. That's that's their penance. Um, In Protestant, it kind of goes away. You don't really have limbo or purgatory in Protestantism, so a spirit could be good or bad. And you get this here because Scrooge is really nervous. He's like, so why are you here? He goes, we're going to help your welfare. Sleep would help my welfare. Can they come all at once? He's negotiating to the last, but he's not sure what their motive is, which is interesting. Um, and we get that these are the chains that I forged in life, which is such an important concept. Yeah, that's a great line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the problem is we all know this, so we, we can keep moving ahead. <laughs> uh, he's told to expect a ghost on subsequent days at 1 in the morning, um, although the way it plays out, it all happens at once, effectively. And time doesn't loses its meaning until Christmas morning. So he goes to bed, he wakes up, it feels like time has passed, and he's listening for the church bell, which, great metaphor, mm-hmm. um, that you're listening for the church bell, when that you should be having a religious conversion. Um, but the first one to come, of course, is the Christmas past. Uh, he's in his adorable nightcap and sleeping shirt, uh, with a bed, a four-post bed, surrounded by bed curtains, and he's just can't sleep. He's listening for the bell, listening for the bell, listening for the bells. There's a line or a joke that was in there about the conical hat, cap like falling down over the ghost's head and not knowing what the... I remember reading it, and it was another one of those moments that I was laughing out loud, but the uh, there was a, there's a description of the, the conical ha- cap on the ghost, I think, that, mm-hmm. that, uh, that was extremely funny to me. Yeah, and... So we have this character who's, I guess, they're supposed to be small, like mm-hmm. too small for it to fit. Um, but the the first ghost is when it arrives, you know, he's waiting for the bell, waiting for the bell. Uh, he's checking the clock, and the clock has gone back in time because he went to bed at like 2 in the morning because mm-hmm. he couldn't sleep. And now the clock is striking 12, and he's confused because he still doesn't understand there's magic in this world, um, which is funny. Um, again, it's, I think Dickens having fun here. Um, but 
Uh, I'm trying to find the quote I had. But when the ghost finally arrives, uh, whatever, I'll find it later. Yeah, here it is. It was a strange figure, like a child, uh, yet not so like a child like I am an old man. Uh, viewed through a supernatural medium, which gave the appearance of having receded from view and being diminished as a child's proportions. Its hair was hung down around its neck. Its white its was white as with age, yet the face did not have a wrinkle on it. it. The tenderest bloom was on the skin. The arm was long and muscular. And it just kind of goes to, like, you have, of course, a youth representing the past, yet this big party animal dude representing <laughs> the present, and then you have like the Grim Reaper representing the future, which we'll get to. I think it's in, you mentioned Macbeth, too, but um, he refers to the, uh, as Scrooge is looking at he says, like, um, I'll show you one shadow more or whatever, which is an allusion right. to, like, the walking shadows and mm -hmm. the poor players. Um, so I just made that connection. So, um, Anything about the past you guys really stuck out? I mean, the kid kind of had a crappy childhood. Uh, we don't know what's going on with his dad, but Scrooge has been sent away. Uh, yeah. And is at this church, or this uh, kind of school out in the countryside, rather, and he's constantly alone. And God, the, like the, the the thing that hit me when I was reading it this time was his <clears throat> only friends are kids from books, mm -hmm. right? And he's reading it goes, "Why there's Alibaba, uh, dear old honest Alibaba." Yes, I know. One Christian time, a military soldier left her all the time. He did come for the first time, just like that. Poor boy. And he keeps saying, poor boy, because you realize he's looking back on his own life tragically until his sister shows up, right? And he's Robin Crusoe and the parrot. And, oh, it's just, it's so sad. Yeah, and you, you get a, I can't remember the exact lines, but the, the descriptions of the schoolmaster and the, the I, I can't remember if it's a headmaster or not, but is uh, portrayed in an extremely negative kind of uh kind of light and i think right off of right off of reading um all quiet on the western front where we have other portrayals of schoolmasters and headmasters that are just so so negative it, it it kind of struck me as like man man oh man this is this is yet another portrayal of school being extremely negative here from mm. from our uh our character's perspective and these are pulled on through this, this is Dickens' own childhood, right, right. and it's built up even more in Nicholas Nickleby mm. when he goes as a young school teacher into these schools with horrible headmasters and children that are just miserable and mm -hmm. awful teachers right. that are, you know, beating the children, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Such an odd calling to just be like, I want to be someone who hits children. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you mentioned the Alibaba and Robinson Crusoe, a little bit of bio I read that those were the, like Dickens apparently was a great mimic and had yeah. aspirations to be an actor, which mm. is probably why he's such a great yeah. you know, reader. But those were like two of his favorite characters. He would put on stuff for his family and, and friends, just acting out and yeah. portraying those characters. So yeah, he, he, he's working his own bio into this as he did with a lot of his work, yeah. Yeah, and, and like when he goes back, what, what's interesting is it kind of merges the story between who's actually recreating it, him or the kid, but, you know, it goes, it's a parrot, you know, there goes Friday running for his life. It's a little Greek. Hello, play, huh? And then it hits Scrooge all at once. I wish, putting his hand in his pocket, looking about him, drying his eyes, but it's too late now. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's, it's such a sad, and I guess part of the question we'll get is at what point could Scrooge have been saved, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Where could it have changed? And the first memory we touch on, he's already almost been abandoned. And there's, there, there's, and there's tragedy there. 
Um, and that's his first response to what he sees. Now, the ghost of Christmas past really kicks him around a lot in this mm -hmm. one, uh, including a scene which isn't usually in film versions where he visits the family of his ex-girlfriend, mm. which is really sad. Um, but at this point, he is reprieved because his sister shows up, yeah. a fan. Um, um, father has been ever so kind since you left, which is a double. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talk about a backhanded compliment. Right? Yeah. My goodness. Um, but, uh, but even Scrooge doesn't fully know uh, all what's going on. She was a delicate creature whom a breath might have withered, the ghost said, but she had a large heart. So she had, cried Scrooge, you're right. Uh, I will not say gain uh spirit, for, God forbid. She died a woman, said the ghost, and she had children, I think. One child, Scrooge returned. True, your nephew. Again, <laughs> it's so heartbreaking because he had family that he ignored. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll get to the nephew several times throughout the story, but the nephew seems to always invite him to Christmas and always get rejected. He goes, because what's the harm in inviting a family member right. who has nothing else? Uh, which is such a sweet message. Like, give it a shot. Why not? Um, he's, he's just poor guy has never learned to make connections. Even at this school, the kids bullied him. The teachers bullied him. He had no way to. His only friends are imaginary, and he just hasn't learned. His family's abandoned him, kind of, and he's got no way to make a connection. Yeah, which is why I guess the next scene is such an interesting transition because we get to Christmas Eve with the Fezziwigs, mm -hmm. and the Fezziwigs are the opposite. And, and we all know people like this who they enter the room and everyone lights up. Mm -hmm. they, everyone knows his wife. They're singing. They're dancing. Like, and how excited Scrooge is to be around him is mm -hmm. fascinating. It's one of the few times in this all where we get, I mean, obviously we know his name is Ebenezer Scrooge, but everyone's calling him Ebenezer as though it's somehow lighter. And mm -hmm. there's another guy he works with, Dick, and they're, they're preparing for Christmas. They're closing the shutters. They're getting the party ready. People are coming in off the street. And he's genuinely excited. We don't see Scrooge excited. Yeah. It's so, it's a good transition here. And, mm -hmm. and I think that they're, I think that Dickens is intentionally setting up that foil, right, between Fezziwig and Ebenezer. And you get the line that says, towards the end of this gathering, uh, you get the line from the ghost that says, think about how little money it took from Fezziwig to put on that party and to make all those people so happy. And it's the moment where Scrooge, he, he like has that glimmer of change for a second, then he's like, oh, humbug again. And he kind of like falls back into his old ways, but you get a little bit of a glimmer there of this stark contrast between Fezziwig and how little money it took to put on such a spectacular gathering for all these people and make so many people so happy. And then the miserly Ebenezer Scrooge that is unwilling to put on on such, uh, such shows of camaraderie, I guess you could say. Um, and I think that it's very intentional that you get such a drastically different character in Fezziwig. And as you're saying that, Mike, I'm thinking, and I'm jumping way ahead, but this would be really great to teach because everyone knows it so well. Like for students, you can get beyond plot and you can talk about the contrast there, the before and after the character, the glimmer, yeah. you mentioned glimmer, but light and dark is all over this, yeah. this work. And so it'd be really interesting to talk about how an author crafts this or how it leads you along. Right. Um, I think even further on that too, if in almost every scene, there's a reference to the coal, mm -hmm. that little glimmer 
and it's just small. It's a tiny little amount, but the glow is there, and he won't let anybody add right. more to it. So even in this scene, you see that his yeah. little glowing coal, mm-hmm. there's something there. He does have humanity in him. He does have mm-hmm. something that if you could just stoke that fire, yeah. you could build yeah. on. Yeah. And to your point earlier, this is another time when the ghost is kicking around what he said in the past, because... Um, when he's talking to his nephew in the yes. earlier scene, he goes, I do. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What right ha- reason do you have to be merry? You're poor enough. And he goes, come now. What reason do you have to reason to be dismal? Uh, what reason do you have to be morose? You're rich enough. And yeah. that's what he's saying. A few pounds would have made everyone happy. Yeah. You, know, mm-hmm. you know, a few bottles of port and a mm-hmm. little bit of food and some music. Everyone's doing fine. Mm-hmm. And that's all this is about. Like, how, how could you not give up this money which you're saving for nothing? Yeah. Um, which, which we'll see, see in the... Yeah, which you see with the third ghost. <laughs> um, after the Fezziwig party ends, uh, just randomly, I was expecting Dick to come back in the story. Like, there was someone else he worked with. It would have been mm-hmm. interesting if he was one of the guys who was happy he was dead or one of the people who showed up mm-hmm. that were talking, you know, the, 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 the four businessmen talking about this rich guy who died and whether or not mm-hmm. they go to the funeral. Just because this is someone he worked with, it would be interesting to see a divergence in some way. Not that I'm criticizing Dickens, it just hit me this time. (laughs) What am I going to say about Dickens? Um, uh, The final little bit of this is him being engaged, Mm -hmm. um, which almost seems out of character uh, that he actually made a connection with someone. uh, But when you're still high on the Fezziwigs, you're just, you're willing willing to meet people. but it's essentially she's breaking off their relationship because mm-hmm. he's become more obsessed with money than being in love with her, um, which is, again, it's a heartbreaking scene because we haven't seen him have any familial connections, really. Fanny comes and... <laughs> Fanny essentially shows up to end a scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, the ghost is like, you were so close. And maybe the ghost is just showing him moments he could have mm-hmm. achieved his salvation. Um, as they say in the story. Yeah, and I think that even though he does get that moment where the ghost is showing him you are so close, it's still very much Ebenezer Scrooge's fault, right? I mean, his, his miserly nature and his, uh, his obsession with uh, this ambition for more and more money and, the, and to be successful, we don't really know where it is that it comes from, but we do know that that is what's cited as the downfall of this would have been relationship. And I think that it's that that's important, I think, if you continue along with the Greek traditional tragedy aspect of this story, that it is because of him that these, uh, be, because of that hemartia, that tragic flaw of his, that he ends up the way that he is in this story. And I think that that's, um, it's important, at least from my reading of it, that it was, his fault and not uh, that it was his fault that this relationship had ended and it was due to his miserly nature Mm -hmm. money which he would not spend on anyone else right right? Mm -hmm. the small matter of a few pounds Mm -hmm. um but this is a scene that is rarely in the film version so it 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 gets me every time i read it i think this is the second or third time i've read the story but they were another scene a room not very large or handsome but full of comfort Again, comparing to Scrooge's house, no comfort there. Near the winter fire sat a beautiful young girl, so like Scrooge believed it was the same until he saw her, now a comely matron, sitting opposite her daughter. And then there's just kids and piles playing around. There's a guy who comes in, uh, the husband, and then a porter with packages. And they're just so excited for Christmas. And you get just for a moment that he wished he had a, a kid. 
right? Uh, the lightest license of a child, and yet to have been a man mm -hmm. enough to know its value. <laughs> Which just is one more kick in his ribs before they're like, <laughs> that was your pass. <laughs> but it's, again, you talk about the craft of this and setting up what you said, Mark, earlier, like looking at the last paragraph, he was a second father there. So here's his redemptive chance to come back and be the man he never was able to before. Yeah. Um, so it's really brilliant when you think of how he's crafted all that. Well, and even within the paragraph, like you have the grandmother and then the daughter and then these kids that he was uh, beginning to ming mingle in their sports, got pillaged by young brigands most ruthlessly. And then he realized, like, he, then he starts to see the fun and the, the kids just being kids and mm -hmm. sitting around and enjoying the chaos of having children near Christmas, playing with their toys. Like, again, I get it. Um, but he's now... Uh, <laughs> broken, he's sad, um, and we kind of drop him back off in his bedding. Mm -hmm. um, he's waiting for, and then he starts waiting once again for the bells. Uh, you good? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Stay three, the second of the three spirits, following along in the text. Yeah. <laughs> for those of you at home, for those of you at home, I'm following along in the text. Um, the second. The second of the ghosts has always been my favorite, just because mm -hmm. it's such an interesting comparison to Scrooge. Right, the the shutters are the shutters. The curtains are closed around his bed. It's very practical to keep in the warmth, the little warmth he has, which we get to in the future. But he's waiting for the ghost, and the bell starts toning. No ghost, no ghost. And then he's like, "What's that light? It's not coming from his room. It's coming from the next room over, a room which we've previously seen as grim." and drab, and mm. so cold because the fire is barely burning, and this is it's just filled with food. And like it's a rolled doll book, <laughs> the food is described for a page almost. Like mm. it's it's just, it you get the, the, the horn of plenty, and Scrooge doesn't even have words. In fact, his one joke is a very Scrooge joke, which is imagine the grocery bill, or imagine, imagine how yeah. it, much it would cost <laughs> to feed your family. Um, but you have the ghost representing everything he's not. Come and know me better, man. The one thing that he doesn't want people to know anything about him. Uh, in fact, to us, we're kind of voyeuristically looking at his life in a way that he doesn't let anyone else look, which is important to the You story. always get like Bacchus or Falstaff, however you want to compare him. This, this guy that knows yeah. everyone that uh, is full of bounty and love and, and good times. And like you say, the complete opposite of what we've seen in Scrooge all the way through so far. Yeah. This solitary figure who wants to minimize everything, and this guy is all about the bounty. Yeah, larger than life. Larger than life. Um, and you get this little element of, I don't want to say Fezziwig, because that's almost too direct here, but Scrooge has to come to him, right? The other spirits, like, approach him. No, he's, in the, he's having a fine time by himself until Scrooge shows up, right? And he's just there, and they describe how the walls have been covered with vines as though there's a garden in his room mm -hmm. and like even things like the filigree of of like the lamps and the walls seem to be brighter because everything is glowing with this guy who's just wearing like a green robe with a laurel wreath and his chest is exposed like he's been drinking all night and he just seems to be the most entertaining exciting person Scrooge has ever met immediately mm -hmm. um, which for a second like makes him quiet until he, even he, he even drives Scrooge to make a joke, which is so such an interesting character trope from someone who himself admits he's not comfortable being outward like that. Yeah. Um, 
and like I said, they just go through everything and describe this room with the mistletoe and the berries and the geese and the turkey. Um, but we get eventually to uh, Christmas today, uh, the Christmas day of, uh, and he's going to take us through everything. Yeah. So yeah, so we get the a couple of uh, stops along the way for the Ghost of Christmas present. We get the uh, we get the Cratchit household, which is where we see the story of kind of the the clerk and what he does on Christmas before going to nephew Fred's place, and then um, and then we get the creatures that Mike you were alluding to of I think is it is it ignorance and want is right the, the, in the ghost robes yeah right under, the end. but beneath the ghost <laughs> robes and and also the description of the ghost as aging like his hair starts to turn gray towards the end of the night and uh, and Scrooge asks him like is your time that short on on Earth that you're already starting to to age and it's it's just an interesting you don't get that with the other with the other ghosts. Uh, and, and certainly not you, you get so little with the ghost of uh, Christmas yet to come mm -hmm. uh, but you get you, you get a little bit of kind of like that aging uh, and I'm, I'm curious what you guys have to think about that what you guys have to say about that but in those in those um, Christmas parties I guess you can call them with uh, with his nephew Fred and with the in and, and with the Cratchit household you get very interestingly I think, a moment when Ebenezer Scrooge's name comes up and it has opposite effects on those different parties. And what I mean by that is at the Cratchit household, uh, you get the, the line where Ebenezer Scrooge's name comes up as the person who was able to provide this, the, the meagerly money that was able to produce this great food and this great, and this great dinner. And then it's described as like a like a black cloud falling on the evening for a good five minutes. And even the children could feel that there was this palpable kind of uh, dissension almost that that's taking place. And then there's the joke that's made when they're doing the yes and no game at the, uh, at his nephew Fred's house and the name Ebenezer Scrooge brings about this uproarious laughter. So it's almost like in one sense, he's seen as this black cloud and in the other sense he's seen as like the butt of the joke and mm -hmm. it's 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 interesting that dichotomy that his name brings about joy yeah yeah um which we have in both scenes here because he's also the founder of the feast right right and so um what was i gonna say oh I love how Fred is just also the opposite of Scrooge. Yeah. Right? He's he's jovial, he's laughing, he's he's almost giddy just to be around all these people on Christmas. Even though they describe the trip to his side of town like he's on an abandoned island somewhere. It's very like the flyovers are interesting. Um, I also <laughs> well, that's that, that's so interesting too, right? That we have a character that's described in terms of their like suburbia, in terms of where it is that they're living. That's so solitary. But think about how not solitary that party is, right? And how solitary the character of Ebenezer Scrooge is, despite the fact that he's living lives in right, the middle in of the, the town, in, in the middle of the city, yeah, right? right. Um, uh, the other thing, the only other thing I wanted to mention about the Cratches is because they come incredibly important later. Um, we have Tiny Tim, mm -hmm. uh, who, if you don't know who Tiny Tim is, uh, I appreciate you joining America for the first time. Because <laughs> it might be one of the most... Tiptoe through the tulips? <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> it might be one of the most uh, trope characters of all time now. Uh, but he is the sickly child who uh, has a seat and a, cra a, a little walking stick, a little cane, uh, that sits by the fireplace. Uh, Based on his nephew or something? Mm -hmm. Is that right, Mark? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's a, um, a nephew that was disabled. Yeah. 
Um, also, he uh, this is it, it's literally here. Less more than halfway through the book that we get Bob Cratchit's name for the first time because mm-hmm. in the first act he's just the clerk. Yeah, the clerk. Um, but a Bob uh, apparently is a shilling. And so they even have the line in here. Uh, the spirit stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling with the sprinkling of his torch. Think of that. Bob had but 15 Bob a week himself. He pocketed Saturdays but 15 copies of his Christian name. And yet the ghost <laughs> of Christmas present blessed his four-roomed house. It's just, it's, again, to him that's a joke. It's a good joke. But it's just, God, that man is living on nothing. Mm-hmm. right? And yet he's filling his, joy, his house with happiness because mm-hmm. it costs so little to make people happy. Um, and, you know, they're preparing Christmas dinner, and we get this scene where the turkey is filled with stuffing, and the kids are all helping, yeah. and the, we get the bless us, uh, you know, bless us all, we get, we get it all there, and then the, the mother is nervous as to whether or not the dessert would turn out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's just, it's such a, it's a very f- familial scene, it's a yeah, very, sure. and again, I, I've been there, you know, you're cooking dinner, you're hoping it all comes together at the end, right? <laughs> and... Other than you, no one would notice. And we know because it's the spirit who's telling right. this to us so he can read people's thoughts. But it's also a scene that Bob has never, or, uh, that uh, Ebenezer has never had. He's never had to worry about these big family dinners the way we see them. And of course, it's not, and you know, it was a small dessert, but everyone was grateful for mm-hmm. it. And we get that time and time again mm-hmm. to fly across town to see a party, <laughs> which is another meager feast, but everyone's just having yeah. the time of their lives, which is why it's so important here. And I, as you're thinking, I'm going back to Mike's question about um, Christmas present and aging in that way. And having just taught the Transcendentalists and um, Hawthorne's birthmark, would, which ends with that great line, he failed to find the perfect future in the present. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if this is Dickens's way of saying, like, the present, again, this is such a cliche, but the present is a gift. Like you're like fully immersed and living in that moment. And if you don't, it passes you by at ages. It goes, it yeah, goes, it goes, it goes. It's only this second. It's right. moving forward. And yeah. what's well, the monosyllable of the totally class is loss, loss, loss. Um, and so that idea that we, you need to appreciate it. Because if you are a miser, right, you're saving money ideally for something you're projecting in the future that you're going to need or want in the future. And so that's Scrooge's failure to live in the moment or yeah. appreciate the moment. Um, I don't know. I'm just kind of riffing on this as no, you guys no, are talking. I think that's it. I think, that's it. I think you're right on it. Right on, yeah. Well, and again, it's not like he's saving them for his children, right? And when people ask for charity, he's like, why would I save money for them? And, and it, it just comes out time and time again. Like, he doesn't rec- he doesn't know his niece because he's never... Like, before they were married, he'd never spent time with, with his cousin Fred, or his nephew Fred. And so these women come up, and there's a guy named Topper who's flirting with one of them. And, you know, he's watching this very unremarkable scene, but noting it in a way like in Aliens Come to Earth. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't quite—do people play games on Christmas? Like, he's like, well, I guess they do. <laughs> yeah. like, and then the scene ends with those two children under his robes, ignorance and and want, right? So right. ignorance, like Scrooge is ignorant of this own potential joy or potential mm-hmm. whatever. And then the want, the idea of sharing that wealth or sharing the want of, I mean, want you can read in so many ways. Like, right. is it his one? Is it the one of society? Um, but I think it's interesting he has the two urchin-like children that are, how does he describe them? Um, boy rag. and girl, yellow meager, yellow, meager, ragged, scowling, wolfish, you know, they're, they're just barely human because they've yeah. been so degraded by society. Malnourished. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, and, and we get this too. Uh, there's a boy at the first act who's singing him carols, and he slams the door in his face. And at one point around here, he goes, 
he feels bad about like I should have given the boy something like he sang me a mm-hmm. song but you know if you look at this as a cultural commentary rather than just a commentary on Scrooge you know in the present there is want uh, there is ignorance of, of the want and it's just behind just out of sight mm-hmm. and if you're living in London uh, just like if you're living in Atlanta like living in Bucket it's so easy to ignore the poverty that's just a few blocks right away across the street yeah um, while you're having you know while you're viewing all this beautiful familial party scenes and just down the road the food kitchen needs help which is kind of what I feel like he's getting at like you're living in London with some of the richest people on the planet and just on the other side you you have the factories where the people are starving or or the um, or up in Manchester or Liverpool all these industrial centers where the poor are out of control and there's nothing they and there's not doing anything to help them other than to throw them in jail um, which is when Scrooge uh, is kind of left in the cemetery here um, waiting well he, he's left as um, present dies as mm-hmm. the present dies and he's waiting for uh, the last ghost which generally is just referred to as the phantom in the story mm-hmm. um, which is huge I, I, again and I'm colored by the versions I've seen but the, 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 the kind of wrinkly hand that reaches out to gesture the, the height Scrooge to me is always depicted as kind of a lanky angular but you know kind of hutched over man um, but not small. Mm-hmm. Um, the phantom always looms over him. The ghost of Christmas yet to come always looms over him. I- I'm curious, now that you mentioned that, so as you guys were reading this, what version was playing in your head? Like, who was the Scrooge or who was the ghost? Who were the kids? Like, you mentioned the ghost, and I think at the Alliance Theater, the um, the one here in Atlanta, the ghost is a huge puppet. It's a like, giant puppet, like 20 right? 20 feet yeah. tall or giant something. Skeleton so that's what I thought of. That's what I always think of, too, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I didn't know if there was, like, a film version or something that's in your head. Um, as you're reading this, because it's so, you know, I so many adaptations. I always think of the 1935. The, the one I like the best is the 1938, the first American version. But there's a 1935, and the Phantom is always just the shadow of a hand. So Scrooge is always seen as a human face with a shadow of himself behind it, uh, with his hair all sticking up. But then this hand shadow kind of creeps over his face, and that's just so creepy because, you know, the shadow of death. Yeah, I've that's never what seen I that. Imagine. Who plays Scrooge in that? I cannot remember. Okay. Again, the, the one I like, it's Reginald Owen. Okay. But in this older one, I cannot remember the guy's name. And if you want to see the Reginald Owen one, it's on Paramount Plus this holiday season. Oh, so there you can just and the old 1935 one's on Amazon Prime for free. Oh, cool. Yeah. I just, I'm, I'm with you, I like it. I, I will say, I generally, again, me and you are the younger ones, so for me, I think there was a, a filmed version that was made for TV starring Patrick Stewart, where he was Scrooge, that was excellent, and I mean, I know you don't like the Muppets. Is, is that the oldest one you remember? No, no, I've, I've actually... <laughs> I kind of grew up with the George C. Scott one. The George C. Scott one oh, I've right, seen. Yeah. Uh, the George C. Scott one. one I've seen. Um, I saw the 1935 one in a film class I took mm-hmm. at one point. Um... But Michael Caine does a good job as Scrooge. I mean, and he's got the action, you know, like, and that's part of it. Like, um, but the George C. Scott one, I mean, he yells at those guys. Like, oh, it's, yeah. it's George C. Scott, so he kind of has to yell. Yeah. Get out of here. And he's got to pull the patent on him. <laughs> he does. Uh, the changeling, just go away, turn it off. Um, but yeah, no, I, but to me, I think, the, especially the ghost of Christmas yet to come has to be almost a puppet or something or a shadow because he's supposed to be otherworldly in a way that the others aren't. Yeah. Like, the Ghost of Christmas Present can just be a big, lovable dude. 
because um, that's who he is. He's got food. He cares for all poor men. He's he's the the one you want to have when you like your party when you want on a bad day. He's just that guy. Um, obviously, having a child be the ghost of Christmas past is hard, but you know, just someone very waifish, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Swildeton, uh, Tilda Swinton, or uh, David Bowie would be fine. You know, someone very <laughs> waif. Um, but you need that big, imposing presence. Uh, so I, I, I do think of a puppet of some sort. Something um, terrifying. Something terrifying. That uh, shadow, again, it fills the role, yeah. Yeah, either a skull face or no face at all. Just mm-hmm. just darkness, because he, he was someone who lived in darkness. Darkness works. Um, but this is the one that doesn't speak. And so Scrooge finally has to do all the talking. And it's very unsettling, mm-hmm. um, because turns out someone's dead. Uh, and Tiny Tim is one of them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they, they it kind of like opens up on the like the ransacking scene or no, is it the I, I I can't remember how it is that it that it opens up, but the I think as a result of not hearing this ghost speak, I think that the dialogue and the scene and thus Ebenezer Scrooge kind of need to speak for itself. And I think that the, the I think it makes these last scenes of the the household workers who are ransacking the his closet and taking the clothes that he was buried in, and the mm-hmm. the woman who the said that shirt. yeah that it was that it was too good to be to be wasted in the ground, and the I think that it makes those lines so much more like deafening in a way because we don't get those lines from the ghosts, and it makes it a little bit more haunting. I think these these scenes that we get, but we get the we. We get the uh, the ransacking of the like the closet. We get the we do get another scene of the nephew's house of Fred's house. We get Bob Cratchit, and then we get the the graveyard. Oh no, we we also get the the bedroom as well, where yes. he's not he's he's not able quite to see the the body that's there on the bed. But I think at that point, at that point, as I'm reading through the story, it's like, come on, you know that this is you that's lying right. on the bed, and I I don't know if. If he necessarily knows it, or or I'm, I'm curious what you guys think about that moment as well. But uh, but you you get the moment as the reader where you're like, okay, we 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 know what's happened here. The die have been cast. We know that this is Ebenezer that's on the bed. Yeah, yes. very Freudian, easy to do a Freudian reading there yeah. of denial or repression. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, and I just the first thing we get is him telling telling us exactly what you said. Ghost of the future, he exclaimed, I fear you more than any specter I have seen, but I know your purpose is to do me good as I hope to live another man from what I was. I am prepared to bear your company and to do it with a thankful heart. Will you not speak for me? And then he repeats the previous two ghosts. Lead on, says Scrooge, lead on. The night is waning fast and it is precious time to me. I know, lead on, ghost. But then he comes across the businessmen who are just yawing about his mm-hmm. death. Yeah. No, said a great fat man with a monstrous chin, which is such a career. Right? I do not know about it either way. All I know, he's dead. And you're just, no one cares. It's, it's, it's just immediate how it's the talk of the town, but there's no one who's emotionally invested. Um, and I will not make any comparisons to the modern day. But, like, I know the kind of person that they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Someone that everyone... Oh, really him and then he's dead they're like huh he's dead and it's just so what won't be missed <laughs> well, and, and he has the line too where he's like show me somebody that's been emotionally changed by by the death of this man and he calls it this man but I think at that point we all know that it's that it's Ebenezer mm-hmm. that they're talking about right. um, and it's it's he's so desperate to see somebody who's been affected in some way and I think the the underlying hope there is that somebody will like miss him when he's when he's sure. dead and gone and 
And he, he, there's very little of that. There's very little of uh, the reaction of people missing him. And I think that it's because he spent his life without any sort of uh, camaraderie. He spent his entire life without any sort of connections being made. And the only person that's been changed is him, right? right? So I was gonna, as you brought up that scene, you read that quote, Nick. Like this is the moment of transition for for Scrooge, right? He's starting to change, or it's the pivotal sort of what next? He he becomes a dynamic character mm-hmm. in terms of literature. And it's interesting at this point too, because it flashes back into the scene before the only one that really cares about him in a little bit of a way are the two. Fred, I think, does have an attachment, even though he's never been given any kindness. Right. And Bob Cratchit, mm-hmm. who, as you remember in the scene before, is asking his family to please is toast thankful. his health. Right. He's given us a family. He's given yeah. us our job. And so, yes, we need to be thankful to that man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's just, I mean, they describe when he's, like, mourning Marley that, like, he didn't even really visit him as he was dying. And so... He was hoping, well, maybe someone was visiting me when I was dying. Mm -hmm. And the only thing was like, oh, this woman, I thought she was putting me off, but he actually did die. Mm -hmm. Just like, all right. Yeah, 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 I remember that line. Um, uh, But yeah, so uh, as we're building up this, do you get it yet? Uh, We have old Joe. Well, can we go back to the thankful heart? Because I'm just thinking like. Is this not the Grinch, right? Oh, yeah. Her heart, yeah. heart is growing. <laughs> All right, yeah. So. Well, and I was, I was thinking, Mark, about what your lines about the, the coal, right? That, that mm-hmm. coal that's been stifled and is still kind of like glimmering there. I can't help but think of the Grinch whose right. heart grows like three sizes. That's it. Whatever, whatever the line is. I mean, there are worse kids' books. So. Right. <laughs> but, and, then, and the Grinch, too, right? Yeah, it's little Cindy Lou Who that, you know, has a transformative effect. And here it's Tiny Tim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I've never made this connection before. So, again, I'm just thinking out loud. As I'm no. Good connection. <laughs> it's great. His first yeah. cof- cup of coffee is kicking in. So. Well, I mean, it, it does help Might to have very more female characters all. in the right. story. <laughs> I mean, you have, like, three in there. So we're here. We're good. Um, but, yeah, so... Uh, Again, you guys know the beats of this. There's a scene at a pawnbroker's house, right, where or whatever he is, old Joe, who's buying up cufflinks and 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 silver tea sets and things that, other than the, the real kicker, which is the blankets and the bed curtains and <laughs> the nightgowns, like it's just like, why would Scrooge have silver tea like teaspoons? Mm-hmm. He never seemed to use anything of luxury. Like it, it's just it's very for his gruel. Like why 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 even have these? Yeah. <laughs> The finest of gruels. Yeah. Just it was just tremendous gruel. Um, but yeah, so and then like you said, we have the the scene that I that got me was uh, he the people who asked him for the extension on the mortgage earlier is like uh, the wife is asking so like what's going on? He goes well. Turns out he did die. So we, while they sort out all the paperwork, we probably have a few more weeks to pay our mortgage, uh, and by then we should have the money. So. Great. Merry Christmas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they come to the Cratchit's house, and Tiny Tim has died. And this is the scene that breaks Scrooge. Um, and it's an affecting scene. I'm not going to say it's not. Um, and He's very good in all of his novels at working the children. You know, Little Nell, and uh, there's there's always the scene where the, with a kid that's dying that ren- renders your heart. Yeah. 
And you to know, the, let me ask you, Mark, since you've read them all, and, and I have not read them all, but does that ever cr- come across as like mawkish or overly sentimental? Just like the manipulative. Only time, but the like, only oh, time I really thought it was dying orphan or was in Curiosity Shop, which I just found very cloying and very kind of overly sickeningly sweet. Okay, uh, and it it seemed like Heidi on steroids. You right. know, it was just a little too much. But the rest of them, it seems very natural the way okay. it's worked for me. Right. I'm just curious. I mean, yeah. there's a there's a tiny Tim in almost all of the stories right. somewhere. But there's a fine line to like overdoing it or just like yeah, they like they mostly work in if you can compare it to like the Gavroche yeah. in in Les Mis. You know, it's a kid who's suddenly when they die, it just because he's a kid, it hits you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just curious. Maybe more than it would have hit an adult. Yeah. Yeah, and you know when when and like you said. Tiny Tim has to die. Like that, that's how these stories work. That's right. Um, the color hurt my eyes. She said, "The color, ah, oh, poor Tiny Tim." And that's just the narrator. Oh, as so the narrator's like, "Oh shit!" Tiny Turn Tim. my head, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and he describes how Bob has been walking home a little slower uh, because of Tiny Tim, and and I don't know. It's not necessarily in the text, but obviously Scrooge is affected by Tiny Tim. But also, Bob Cratchit is the only person who's seen him every day for the last 20 years or whatever mm-hmm. and has n- does not care that Scrooge is dead. And again, it's the death of his child, but Scrooge is never mentioned either mm-hmm. as someone else who's died. And so I think part of it is just he had a family. You don't matter to him, right. which is just – it's and, of course, um, Ebenezer Scrooge mourns Tiny Tim. And in every version I've seen, this is where he breaks and really cries. Like, not just that he's afraid of the spirit, but the idea that, um, because the ghost of Christmas present tees this up. I see a chair and a cane with no with no owner, Mm -hmm. and you're just like, this is going to be a hard one. Keep going, Um, because that's such a um, because this is that's also when he spits back at him. Well, if he's going to die, he might as well do it to decrease the surplus population. And he mm-hmm. goes, "Oh, not Tiny Tim," because we have a connection. He has finally made a connection with a child that, in real life, he's never he's met. never met. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, it's so perfect. But I think that there's something there about the that notion of fatherhood, and the I I can't remember if it's the if it's in the scenes with the ghost of Christmas present or the ghost of Christmas future, but he has the line where he says, Oh, to be called a father by someone else. Mm. And it's that, that notion of Mark, you were talking about it before this kind of stepping into this role of this fatherly figure, uh, even in just a spiritual way for this character of tiny Tim, it's almost like in the least creepy way possible. Ebenezer Scrooge is always watching. Right. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's almost as though he, he has he lacks that connection so much, and so when we get that little bit of that glimmer of it, it's so powerful. It's the uh, Sondheim musical where uh, Bobby, the the character, is always on the outside looking at all of his friends have families, everybody, and he's the single one. And at the end, you have that revelation of what am I missing? What's it's it is a Christmas Carol in a different. Uh, or, or, or to bring up another story that we've talked about this season, I'm thinking of Boo Radley from the from To Kill a Mockingbird, Absolutely. this person who has no sort of connection with these children and yet is still that kind of fatherly figure that's watching all along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, very Christian, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. At this point, we uh, see, enter scene, cemetery. Um, <laughs> who, you know, who was it who died and what made everyone so happy? 
Uh, turns out it was Walt Disney. I mean, Ebenezer Scrooge. Yeah. And uh, when they dusted away, and he, you know, and then he weeps, and we end up back in his bed. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's light as a feather, merry as a schoolboy. Yeah. Um, you know, and the, and the end of this, he's turned around. Although, again, there's some changes that Hollywood producers made for probably good reasons. Uh, he does buy the largest turkey that has ever happened uh, because we still have people working on Christmas in this world, right. uh, including the butcher. <laughs> the irony there, yeah. I mean, it would have been funny. It, it, it wouldn't be as satisfying because, oh, no, it's Christmas. Everything's closed. Sorry. Uh, and, and I do like in the older movies when the, the largest turkey that's ever been is, is the Christmas goose, and it's still a scrawny little goose based on those times back then compared to the current Before movies where it's hormones, like this yes. giant, you know, yeah. They're walking with like a balloon prop. Yeah. Yeah. The Macy's Day turkey. Yeah. I love the line, though, where it says, there never was such a goose. And never, it's just so, it's, it's so, awesome. It's so great. It's that intentional vagary that, like, I mean, I was thinking Lovecraft, but just in general, a lot of people are like, it's unimaginable. And you're just like, well, try. You're the object. <laughs> just try a little bit. Give us something. There yeah. never was such a goose. <laughs> oh, um, so short and pointed and so beautiful. As though his legs would have broken underneath. It was, right. it's, it's, it's very funny. Um, but here, he doesn't show up at the Cratchit's house, which is the big break, I would say. Mm. Although it does, it does mention him as being so happy, he's dancing while he's shaving, and like as though he could cut his nose off and, and cover it with care, yeah, right? yeah. He wouldn't care. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever been that happy, but we'll see. Um, but he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't show up at the Cratchits in this version, so they just get But he does in pretty much every film version, right? right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was, that was new to me, because I expected that, because I'm so ingrained in my <laughs> yeah. head, yeah. Uh, Someone sent us a mystery turkey. <laughs> All right. Um, but then the next morning... Uh, when he's supposed to be at work all the earlier, Bob Cratchit is this late because he's kind of hungover, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, and they sit down to a cup of Smoking Bishop, which is mulled wine, and he goes, I'm giving you a raise. Um, and, you know, cue the bells and Christmas music, right? Um, anything else you guys want to touch on before we, we get out of here? I, I like the end. So after that, and then the the narrator jumps in and said Scrooge was better than his word he did it all and infinitely more and to Tiny Tim who did not die so they, they want to make clear like <laughs> this is not this, another this, little Nell this character yeah. who yeah, you're kind of attached to he lives yeah <laughs> oh, I just like that line there yeah and then at the end you guys talked about the humor um, where he says he has no further intercourse with spirits but lived upon the total absence, abstinence principle so like yeah. punning on the idea of yeah. drinking and right. dose yeah that, that made me chuckle. <laughs> I'm yeah. a sucker for puns, yeah. No, it's good. And um, and because he's been this jerk character until you know the last little bit, he goes, Merry Christmas, Bob, said Scrooge, with an earnestness that could not be mistaken. Like, just so we know it wasn't sarcastic or passive-aggressive <laughs> yeah. and smacked him on the back. A merrier Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, uh, than I have given you for many a year. I'll raise your salary. Um, and assist your struggling family. And at that point, he has to be like, how do you know my family? Right, yeah. But you know what? (laughs) Something's wrong with your boss. He's giving you money. You just take it. Um, Because in all the movie versions, I've been peeking through the window from outside. (laughs) But to your point, Mark, the last line is that, you know, he says, Bob, buy another coal scuttle. And so that idea he's going to kindle this fire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's a great callback, yeah. Yeah, before you dot another I, Bob Cratchit. Uh, Which, again... Just case in point, it's the first time he's addressed Bob by name yeah. in the entire story, mm-hmm. right? Because beforehand, he's just clerk. You clerk. And uh, I get the feeling that he may never have known his name until the end, you know, that he's just been clerk. 
yeah. and maybe I've bothered to learn your name and I'm going to get to know you now. So yeah. it's, it's a scene of warmth, literally, mm-hmm. physically. Yeah. Warmth. Yeah. <laughs> right. They're drinking a hot drink. Right. They're sitting around a, f- a, a roaring He's fire. He's bringing up the light, bringing up the heat where it had been cold and dark and isolated before. Right. So, and yeah. I, I hadn't read it this way before. Well, I guess because I hadn't read it before. Uh, but <laughs> I, I hadn't if – you, if, if you do apply the Greek traditional tragedy to, to kind of push that reading one more time – the, the tragedy is all about the catharsis, right, which typically is experienced by the audience as you're watching this, this uh, great tragedy taking place. And you and the audience are thinking to yourself, I'm never going to be as rash as Romeo. I'm going to change my life. I'm never going to be as hesitant as Hamlet. I'm going to change my life. I'm never going to be as ambitious as, uh, as Caesar. I'm going to change my life. Well, in this story, we actually get the catharsis that's experienced not by the reader necessarily, though I guess you could say that that does, in a way, take place. But you get the catharsis that's experienced by Ebenezer Scrooge. You get the the character who not only is redeemed, but he has gone about changing his ways because of this transformative, would-have-been-tragedy that takes place. And so I think that all of these scenes of him being so overjoyed and Dickens going over the top in his way of describing him as being so overjoyed and him dancing and not being not caring whether he cuts off his nose with his razor because he's so elated i think that it's all going to show that catharsis and that transformation that's taking place that typically we would place on the audience it would be their responsibility but here we get it taking place with ebenezer scrooge which Mm -hmm. i just think is a really cool twist if you do read it that way if you do apply that lens i think it's a really cool take on the story no i agree i totally was thinking the same thing so scrooge is is the audience is the stand-in yeah. for the audience and he is watching these plays and and being transformed by it. yeah i totally agree with that reading mm-hmm. mike yeah yeah also just thinking out loud it's interesting that he shaves his own face it's another way for him to be cheap because back then you would go to the barber and get mm-hmm. shaved with straight razor, so he's doing it himself and now he's realizing the danger um, <laughs> um i guess we should say rather than most film version he does actually go to dinner at his nephew Fred's house mm-hmm. um, and by all account does have a good time uh, which you know is a surprise to him um, <laughs> Tiny Tim who did not die always gets me too <laughs> it does always get me the immortal Tiny Tim the Highlander <laughs> Tiny Tim um, anyway final thoughts uh, we'll start with our guest Mark do you have any final thoughts uh, on this whole thing? <laughs> uh, not necessarily on Christmas Carol I mean it, it's a uh, it, it's just gotten the the rap of being kind of a cheesy thing that comes out on a late movie on on every Christmas. Right. But I think there's more depth to that, and it's a I think it's a good introduction uh, to his works. But there's so much more. We were talking before we started this. My my favorite, and it's not always the critics' favorite. The critics all go with Bleak House as being the masterpiece, or David Copperfield as being the best. I love Nicholas Nickleby and Little Dorrit. Mm-hmm. So. They're all doorstops. They're huge, but jump in on it. I mean, they're, they're such good stuff. And I think that uh, Christmas Carol is, is really good because it's, it is so honed down. Mm-hmm. Usually in the other ones, because they're, each chapter is almost a cliff ta- cliffhanger, and then you have a social commentary chapter following and then another cliffhanger to keep the story moving along. This one doesn't have those large social commentary chapters, the story just keeps moving, 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 and mm-hmm. it's, it's again, as you say, you can read it in an afternoon. Yeah. Mike? Um, yeah, just having read it and never read it before, but through that eyes of the lens of a teacher, 
I think it would be really rewarding to teach because you can read it in a day or a couple class periods, but then you could talk about all the different choices that different directors make, filmmakers, uh, adaptations, uh, as well as just the the sort of craft of the text itself. So I think it could be uh, a really rewarding lesson for the kids um, at you know Brit Lit level or an eighth grade level, perhaps or something like that. So. Yeah, I would suggest that everyone reads it. It's definitely worth the read, and it's super easy. Yeah. And to boot, almost every large town has a stage version that goes exactly. on around the holidays yeah. Yeah. as a follow-up project. Right. Yeah. Or let alone have the kids put on a version of yeah, it. That's, yeah, that's exactly what I was right. going to say, Mike. As as Whenever we're finishing up these podcasts, I'm always thinking to myself, well, what's the how, – how would I go about trying to teach this in a, in a classroom? And not only do I think that it, that it would – fit in terms of the literary analysis, Mike, that you're talking about, but the creative aspects of being able to take a scene and and adapt it or to even watch movie clips of it, because I think that you would have to, and and kind of put your own spin on a, either a modern adaptation or some or some different setting adaptation mm-hmm. on uh, on the story, I think would be a really cool project that would be kind of uh, culminating for this for this text and it's so short too you could you could almost do the entire thing reading it aloud in class um so i'm my mind always goes to how could this be done in the classroom and i think that it would be really fun to teach yeah i agree um and i i agree with all of you um i enjoy it i've read it several times it's one of those books that you read and you notice more each time this time i was really taken by how funny it was at points Mm -hmm. yeah uh because again you think of it as you want Scrooge to be a jerk. We get that. But here he's having fun. I, I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would insist, if you are going to do that, find a version without images because it's such a well-known book that's in the public domain. So there's illustrated copies. I want If you're going to do it, go in plain because, uh, mm-hmm. unfortunately, again, I'm sure the Flintstones had a conversion. The Jetson, <laughs> everyone's done this because it's such a good quintessential cultural zeitgeisty kind of story. So do it and then do a film comparison. I rank it up there with The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's part of our culture. It's part of our heritage, yeah. no yeah. matter, even, even though they were, we're not British. But still, mm-hmm. it's, it's been around forever. And I think some of those things are, are what hold us all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or do you think there's more versions of A Christmas Carol or Sherlock Holmes? Uh, I mean, like, it's probably <laughs> close. I mean, it's, it's got to be up there. Um, anyway, uh, but we appreciate you. We're, we're just about out of time here. Um, I'm releasing something that's not truly a, an episode, but a, something special around the holidays. So we are only going to do this one full episode this month, just so we can have a little bit of a break. But as usual, I will tell you what's coming into the future. Uh, our two January episodes are the Will of Katha story, Death Comes for the Archbishop, and um, A Confederacy of Dunces uh, by John Kennedy O'Toole. Um, so, uh, stay tuned. Keep sharing us however you're sharing us. For the about 30,000 of you who've listened to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in the last six weeks what? on Spotify, thank you. Wow. <laughs> What's that about? Um, and plug the Insta. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, michael.c.carol. Uh, we're on Instagram where uh, you can follow along everything that we're doing with this required reading podcast and then some of the. Uh, journey that I'm on as uh, as I try to get myself published in the uh, public world. So, uh, yeah, follow along. And thank you to everybody who's been so welcoming in that platform as well. 
Yeah, and uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, I don't use it much, but at Required Pod on Twitter because I like watching something completely fall apart, uh, which who knows if it'll be around by January, but at the moment, Twitter uh, at Required Pod. Uh, anyway, thanks thanks for all you do, guys. Thanks. Merry yep. Christmas. Thanks, Merry Christmas. Required Reading is a product of Maris Podcasting and Dude Letter Podcasting. It is hosted by Nick Hoffman and co-hosted by Mike Burns and Mike Carroll. It is edited and produced by Nick Hoffman. The theme is Sands by Davis Burns. The opinions expressed are opinions of the hosts and the guests, but not of Marist School. All rights reserved. Thanks. <laughs>